0: Our God and Father, Lord, holy is your name, O God. Lord, we do praise you and exalt you, and we've gathered in this place to worship you and to lift up your name and to give you the glory that is due to your name. And Lord, to rejoice and to sing of the great things that you have done for us and the great joy that you have poured into our hearts by your Spirit. Our Father, we are so thankful for your gracious love to us through our Lord Jesus Christ, who, that Lord, while we were yet sinners, died for us. And that Lord, He bore our sins in His body on the tree and made full atonement for all our evil deeds and our wickedness before you. That Lord, He paid our debt in full and we have been set free. Our guilt has been removed. And his righteousness has been credited to us. Oh, God, what great promises we have from you. And how you have received us and reconciled us to yourself. And more than this, Lord, given us eternal life in heaven, in your kingdom. Where there will be no more sin or dying or crying or pain. And the old order of things will pass away. And so our hope is firmly set on that day when our Lord Jesus will return in power and take us to be where he is. O God, we thank you for this kindness that you have displayed to us through our Lord Jesus and called us to by your Spirit. We ask, O Lord, as we look into your word today that you would give us clear insight, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word with hearts ready to obey, for Lord, we are your people, we are your children, you call us your sons and your daughters, O oh God. O oh Lord, we are servants in your house, about your business, and we, Father, we look to you for strength in our faith to carry on each and every day. And Lord, that we might be a bright and shining light to this dark and evil age. Oh God, give us opportunity to speak your gospel. And Lord, give us minds that understand and can clearly articulate it to others so that they may be saved. And we thank you for the great privilege that we have to be the recipients of all these blessings and glories. We thank you for the privilege that we have to freely gather in this place and proclaim your word. We honor you and we bless you this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so we're back in our study of 2 Thessalonians, and uh, we have arrived at uh, the text of chapter 2, verses 15 and following. And uh, I just wanted to briefly remind you of the context of our lesson. You can I borrow one of those? Okay, oh, we go. Um, and I'm going to read to you Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse thirteen, through chapter three, verse five. This really is the context that we are into now, and. Even though it's really connected all the way back to chapter 2, verse 1, this section that uh, Paul is in, this context really flows all the way into chapter 3. I'll start reading at chapter 2, verse 13. This is the Word of God. But we should always give thanks to God for you, (laughs) brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Through the sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort, and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Amen. And so there you see um, just really a magnificent section of Scripture where Paul is really talking about many different aspects of salvation. He mentions in verse 13... Uh, past aspects of our salvation, where we have been chosen uh, by God from the beginning for salvation. And then he talks about those days that have passed by when we were called to faith by the gospel in verse 14. It was for this he called you through our gospel. And then he even speaks of a yet future time in our salvation and says that we may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there he makes reference to that final day of our glorification wherein we will be made imperishable and immortal even then by the Spirit of God. And so, if you will, Paul is is uh, making these all-inclusive statements about our salvation. He's talking about... Uh, many different aspects of it. And he's going to go on to do this uh, all the way through the section in uh, chapter 3, verse 5. He's going to mention many different words that describe our salvation and the working out of it and even its yet future tenses. And uh, this is a really interesting section of Scripture. Last week we looked at verses 13 and 14, which say, But we should always give thanks to God for you, Brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there we were talking about this uh, concept or doctrine, if you will, of divine election that Paul brings up here. In speaking about the Thessalonians, but this he does by way of contrast, because in the former verses, in the preceding verses, in the context here, he had been talking about those who perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, and are swept away in the end-time deception under the evil influence of the Antichrist, which power had been granted to him by God to work that deception to those who refuse to love the truth, but instead took pleasure in wickedness. And Paul makes a contrast when he says to the Thessalonians, but you, you're not like them. And in this contrast, he begins to describe who these Thessalonians are and why they are who they are. And of course, he brings up this great doctrine of election as a way of assuring them that they are held firmly in the grip of the eternal God and that their salvation and its security lies firmly in his hands, because they have been chosen by him for salvation. These are the words of God to us. We have been chosen from the beginning for salvation, and we see this, the fact of this being worked out in our life through the sanctification by the Spirit. We see the ongoing process of sanctification in our life, and we know that this is the powerful working of God's Spirit changing us, and that all of this has come to us by a gift that God has given us, which it's described here as faith in the truth. And we know from the New Testament that, the, that faith is something that is a gift that is given to us by God. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Amen? So both the grace of God in salvation and the faith that he gives us to believe and to trust and to persevere is the gift of God in salvation. Amen. And so, if you will... Paul is describing our salvation with many descriptive terms, both past and present, and yet even future, when he mentions the glorification that we will receive in a yet future day. Last week, we got on our notes down through page 102, almost to the bottom there. And just toward the end of the lesson last week, I mentioned this handout that I had given you last week which is a discussion about the Ordo Salutis, or the Order of Salvation. And the reason I brought this up is because in this short little context of Paul's writing, he actually mentions six different, um, if you will, doctrines that are included in a discussion of the Order of Salvation. And so, here on the handout, we were talking about uh, and, of course, I've presented the order as, as they come out of uh, Grudem's systematic theology, which I happen to agree with wholeheartedly. But there he mentions the order of salvation as happening this, in this order. Election, which is God's choice of people to be saved in eternity past. The gospel call, which is the proclaiming of the message of the gospel by which we respond in time and space to be saved. Then, of course, uh, regeneration which is the powerful work of God that he does in granting us new birth, where we are resurrected from our spiritually dead state and given power by God and capacity, if you will, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to repent of our sins. And that regeneration results in what we call conversion. Conversion being... Uh, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as manifested by repentance from sin. Okay? So if you will, conversion happens when we believe. And that true saving faith produces in us characteristics, mainly repentance from sin and confession unto righteousness. For one believes in his heart and confesses with his mouth unto salvation. And then uh, uh, that conversion... When we take that God-given gift of faith and we employ it to trust in our Lord Jesus Christ for righteousness, God then credits that righteousness of Christ to us and justifies us as a legal act in his court, if you will. And it is at that point in time, if you will, that we actually become justified and counted righteous in Christ in the sight of God. That justification results in what's happening in conversion. You employ the faith. God, in response to your faith, which he gave you, (laughs) um, justifies you. He justifies you on the basis of what Christ has already merited for you. Then, after that, justification takes place. The result of justification is reconciliation unto God. The barriers of our sin and his wrath has been propitiated and our guilt has been removed and we are therefore reconciled to God. And in that reconciliation then, God adopts us into his family as his children. And that adoption then is who we are. We have become the children of God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and having been reconciled to God by all of these great things that he has done then at that point in time is when the sanctification process begins. So God has saved us in a past tense sense in time and space back when we believed because by the regeneration of the Spirit he gave us faith and we employed it and repented of our sins and trusted in Christ by which we were justified and adopted into his family having been reconciled. You understand all these terms are biblical terms, right? And so this process of sanctification begins where whereby God is making us in our practice conformed into the image of Jesus and holy even as we are already in our position before God because of the things that Christ has done for us. Do you understand? So there is, if you will... a a positional sanctification that we already have whereby in Christ we are holy and blameless in the sight of God, yet we are still in this body of sin and struggling, if you will, by the Spirit of God and by the good things He is working in our hearts to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. And this process of sanctification is an increasing thing that increases in our life Unto the day of our final glorification, when we will be utterly and completely set free from the power of sin and its effects, when this body of sin is transformed into the body of his glory, which will no longer be subject to sin and death, the Bible describes that body as imperishable and immortal. (coughs) Which means it cannot perish and we cannot die. That's what immortality is. Amen? Can you imagine
1: this?
0: (coughs) Excuse me. That us Christians have the promise of immortality. Usually those are terms that we ascribe only to God. Amen? And yet God has (coughs) firmly promised to us that that is our great hope. Not only that. But the end of all things is near, family. This is right around the corner for all of us. I can remember being a little tight and going to visit my gramps and thinking, good night, he's an old guy. He, he You know, he's as old as the hills. And then I, I, I remember thinking when my gramps died, good night, his life is just a memory. Pow! Here and gone. And not only that, but the generations that went before him and before them and before them, all the way back to the great deluge and even beyond, back to when man was first created on the earth, it's nothing but a memory. 6,000 years. Pow! It's gone. Let me tell you, the end of all things is near. Nearer than when you first believed. It's right around the corner. And I want to encourage you with this. The reality of immortality and the reality of the power of God for us living eternally in His presence, in eternal bliss in His presence is a far greater reality than this present evil age that we're struggling in right now. Because... That is a reality that continues forever and ever and ever and ever, world without end. And that, by the specific purpose of God to save you and deliver you into that state of immortality. And what He describes, this little blip of time that we call your life, where you're struggling to be sanctified, is nothing but a light and momentary affliction that is achieving for us in a glory, a glory that's. Far beyond any comparison that we can compare it to in this brief time. I'm telling you, it's the much greater reality. Our immortality is a much greater reality than our mortal bodies in this world of evil where we are struggling to obey God and to glorify Him with our life. Our hope is firmly fixed on that greater reality. Are you with me? And as I've told you so many times, like the great hymn says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. 10,000 years will go by in that place, and it will seem like but a moment's time. Are you with me? It's a far greater reality. And we need to have our hope that firmly fixed in eternity that we see our life through those eyes of eternity. Amen? God help us. So, if you will, this order of salvation, is this sanctification process is going to result by God's power, by his keeping power in what we call perseverance, which means we are going to persevere to the end of our faith. Because Jesus is the good shepherd and he will lose none of all that the Father has given to him. And that includes you. If he has given you faith and you have trusted in Christ and repented of your sins. Amen? We know that that has happened to you when we look at your life and we see the process of sanctification taking place in your life. And your obedience to Christ is proof that you have been saved. That's why Paul says when he preached the gospel, Acts twenty six twenty that you ought to prove your repentance by your deeds. Amen? So, the, the result of persevering in the faith until the end, when we die, is that we will be glorified. And that is, of course, for those of us who die. Because, behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, right? And that great event that we have been speaking of for many, 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 many weeks now, the first resurrection happens when the Lord himself descends from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ, rise first. And we who are alive and remain are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be with the Lord forever. Amen? And so, if you will, that order of salvation results in glorification, which is what Paul has in view when he says, we are going to gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or if you will, like he says in Philippians 3.20, that he is going to powerfully transform this earthly body into conformity with the body of his glory. We're going to receive a glorified body. And that body will be much like the body that we saw Jesus take on after his resurrection. What promises are ours? Amen? Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I want out of this place. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. I know about you. You want out too. Yeah. Praise God. Amen? Yeah. So I, I brought that order of salvation to you because, there, like I said, there are six different aspects that are right there listed in that order of salvation they are right here in this context that we're studying out of the letter of 2 Thessalonians. And I just thought that uh, it would stir you to further contemplation of these words describing salvation and its different aspects as we're going through the context. Then also, by the way, I provided a little bit more information on the back of that sheet concerning the idea of sovereign election. And, uh, you know, I don't know, there, there are several of you here that maybe are newer to the church. I really don't know what your background is. Some time ago, I, I spent a lot of time going through these doctrines. And I spent, as a matter of fact, I went through the entire doctrine of salvation back in uh, two, early 2007. And when I did that in this class, all the uh, teachings were recorded And at the bottom of this, I provided a link where you can find the section where I was teaching on sovereign election. And uh, if you click on that link, you'll wind up on my website, Heaven's Light, where you can also go back out to the homepage and just look at the Sovereignty Series, and there you can see all the lectures and all the handouts for the teaching through the entire Doctrine of Salvation. So uh, I wanted to give you some additional resource there and point you to that. (laughs) Because, uh, obviously, when we begin to try to embrace things that the Bible says about salvation, it causes a struggle for us because of our inability to stand in eternity and see things from God's perspective. Nevertheless, it doesn't change the realities about what salvation is. It's just difficult for us to understand. Not only that, but the Bible gives us uh, many and varied uh, uh, discussions about this past aspect of salvation and uses words, for example, like election and calling and predestination and foreknowledge. And there's these these terms that really uh, strike us. They're difficult for us to understand because as far as we know, we were just going on through life and somebody somewhere someday showed up and told us the good news. And we said, wow, that's amazing. I I'm utterly convicted by my sin and, and I see that I, I need to trust Christ to be my Savior. And this powerful work of God came upon us and we had no idea really what was happening until we got saved and many years later as we were reading through the Bible, we began to put all the pieces together and see that it was God who was at work in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Right? And so, if you will, we are then beginning to embrace the sovereignty of God in salvation and beginning to understand that great truth and a very difficult truth to come to for some more than others. Nevertheless, um, this is in fact what has happened. We have been chosen by God from the beginning for salvation. And this isn't the only place, not only in the Pauline corpus, but in the New Testament and Old Testament, where that's mentioned. In fact, it's mentioned frequently. It's mentioned in the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ in several places, and it's mentioned by almost every New Testament writer. And so, if you will, there's much to be said. And I would I would commend to you Grudem Systematic Theology, Chapter Thirty Two, talks about uh, uh, the doctrine of unconditional election, and it is in there where I got this order of salvation right off the first pages of Chapter Thirty Two of Grudem's theology, he does a great job dealing with that doctrine. <coughs> that being said,
1: <laughs>
0: I realize that I came in here last week and I went through this whole doctrine of sovereign election and then I left without giving you an opportunity to ask any questions. Oh. <laughs> so, I want to give you that opportunity now. Was there anything that we covered that you want to ask about? Charles? Can we you don't mean regeneration you mean justification okay well that's good that you say either one because they're both inextricably tied together one cannot be justified apart from regeneration because one cannot have faith by which he is justified except through the divine act of regeneration in which he is given that faith to believe And so, of course, the answer is no, to get right to the point. Can regeneration be undone? If somebody is born again, can they be unborn? And the answer is no. Why? Because they have been made powerfully alive by God. They were spiritually dead, and they were raised from that spiritually dead state by God. And the purpose of God in raising them from that dead state was to give to them salvation and eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that God did by God's purpose and God's election, which he is now working out in our life through sanctification by the spirit and faith and the truth. You see, salvation is God's work. It's not our work. And when God chooses to save, God, in fact, does save. And... um, you know, so so uh, obviously there is a controversy in Christianity where people in certain churches uh, and are, are taught that you can actually lose your salvation. And I'm not talking about what what we call once saved always saved. Okay, there there is, if you will, a a certain doctrinal position that's taught by a lot of evangelical Christian churches that they call once saved always saved. I am not referring to that doctrine that's taught by those traditions of evangelical Christianity. What I am referring to is the biblical idea of salvation, which happens through the regenerating act of the Holy Spirit by God. That is something that cannot be undone. Why? Because it's God's purpose to save, and no one is going to thwart that. That's why Jesus makes statements like this. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And he who comes to me, I will never drive away. But I will what? Raise him up at the last day. What are you trying to say, Jesus? It's really confusing. (laughs) No, it's not, right? It's really not confusing. It's hard to understand, but it's not confusing at all what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, the Father has picked out a whole set of individuals to give to me. And all of the ones individuals, that he gives to me, right? I am going to raise up at the last day. And in that whole discussion, he doesn't say a single thing, right, about man's will or man's ability. He simply speaks about God's sovereignty in the process of election and glorification. Whom he says God picks and he glorifies. True? True. And of course we find many statements like that in in the New Testament about salvation. And and so we go to other places in the New Testament that say for example that unless we persevere till the end we won't be saved. And we say, "Well, wait a minute, isn't that a contradiction?" Well, no, that's not a contradiction. Why? Because we know that we will all of those who have been elected by God, right? by the keeping power of Christ the Good Shepherd, will be kept until the day of Jesus Christ and we will be saved. Why? Because we have great faith and ability to persevere in the midst of great trial and temptation? No, but because of the strong arm of God to save us and keep us until that day, right? And and so, if you will, I said all of that just to give you some brief support for the fact that no, regeneration and justification cannot be reversed because it is God's act in salvation. It doesn't free us from the responsibility of responding in faith, which is something we do, but that capacity has been given to us by God, and that same capacity that was given to us in regeneration also by His Spirit causes us to persevere till the end and be saved and glorified. Amen? Is there another question there? Somebody? Yes, sir.
1: Uh, brother, I'm still uh, grappling with the, uh, uh, the thought of a just judge, God, as a just judge, to punish those who he's elected for damnation. How do I get past that?
0: Well, um, if you will, there's no language in the Bible that says God has elected people to damnation. However... That does not mean that the doctrine is not obvious to us because he has elected those who are going to be saved. Uh, But I will point you to a biblical answer because the mystery of the question you ask, I, I must tell you, is the greatest struggle that I have had in my study of theology to this day. It is a very difficult thing for me to understand how God is going to allow sin and death in his creation Um, because of his abhorrence of those things. But it's very obvious to us all that God is sovereign over evil, and that God has allowed evil to exist in the world, and God, fully knowing the results of what evil would accomplish, has, has yet allowed that evil to take place for his own purposes. And that the Bible makes really clear to us, But it does not necessarily disclose all of the divine mysteries of damnation. What we do know is that God is glorified in creation. He's glorified in the redemption of sinners. And he's also glorified in damnation. And so if you will, damnation is a manifestation of the glory of God. As difficult as it is for us to grasp that. And the biblical answer I wanted to give you, which I think hits the nail right on the head of your question, is Romans 9:22 and 23. <clears throat> so I, I, if I repeat the question right, how can a just God uh, how, how is it just for God? to have elected certain individuals for damnation when he's effectively commanding us uh, not to sin and and to do what is right. True? Uh, And and the answer is, um, as I described, not real easy to swallow, but nevertheless, I think clear that it is in the purpose of God to glorify himself by the means of both redemption and damnation. And so, if you will, Paul kind of sums up the argument. You know, in Romans 9, which, by the way, if you really want to dig into this, go to my website, Heaven's Light. Go to the Sovereignty Series on the homepage. Go down to the section on Sovereign Election that I mentioned, or even just go to the link that's on the bottom of this handout here, which is the link for Sovereign Election. Uh, on that page and there I'm going through Romans 9 verse by verse through the whole chapter and I'm giving commentary on that the argument that's highlighted in Romans chapter 9 is the argument of sovereign election and Paul is saying what's the deal Um, you know uh, before Jacob and Esau were even born when the twins were still in the mother's womb God said Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated what's that all about and Paul says, good night. The first question we ask is, is there injustice with God? Right? Because it's not according to man who wills or runs, but according to God who has mercy. And he's saying it's very clear that the doctrine of election exists in the Bible, but that that brings up this whole question of how can God be just if he's electing people? Right? Well, Paul answers that. <clears throat> And he says very clearly in uh, verses, uh, well, I'll just read from 16 on. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. In other words, God elects whom he wants to salvation. Mm -hmm. And then then he, he gives an example from the Bible. He talks about Pharaoh. And he says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. But well, why does he use Pharaoh as an example? Because Pharaoh is an example of damnation. And not only that, Paul is saying, God, God here in the Exodus says he raised up Pharaoh for his purpose. What is it? That he might be glorified in the earth by the by the amazing things that he did there um, uh, with Moses and delivering his people. And, and Pharaoh becomes this type, if you will, of Satan in the world. And, and, and nevertheless, the man Pharaoh is in hell even as we speak. And God uh, uh, t- took Pharaoh in, in all of his sinfulness and in all of his pride and all of his arrogance and used him to glorify his own name. And still to this day. God is being glorified in the just condemnation of Pharaoh, and his evil, wicked persecution of God's people. He goes on, verse eighteen. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. What's your point, Paul? You with me? I mean, it's not—it's not unclear. It's just difficult to grasp. What's he saying? (laughs) he's saying God is sovereign and elects whoever he wants that's what he's saying he goes on verse 19 you will say to me then why does he still find fault for who resists his will right so he's asking the question about the justice of God he's bringing up a hypothetical question right you will say to me then if this is true if God hardens whom he wants and, and has mercy on whom he wants then how can he still find fault right that's the question we're asking Paul says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Did you make the world? Right? See, I'm with you. I mean, I'm asking the question too. I want to know how a just God can do the things he's doing. Especially when he gives us the clear revelation about it all. Okay? I'm with you. But when I'm asking that question of the justice of God, here's what God is saying to me. Who are you to ask me about how I made my world and how through my providence I'm carrying out my purposes in my world with mankind whom I have made who belong to me? You understand? That's, what, that's how God answers us when we ask that question. Now, <clears throat> I want to say that it's, it's not as if God is just smacking us upside the head and saying, hey, dummy. You have no right to ask that. that. That's not the deal. But the deal is this. We must recognize the sovereign majesty of the creator who has made the world and everything in it for his own purposes. And although I think it is perfectly acceptable to God for us to question him about his justice, and not only that, I would go to the length of saying, argue and struggle with God at great length concerning his justice, and I think you should do that until it's settled in your heart that God is altogether righteous in whatever he does. I think that's perfectly acceptable for us to argue with God and to try to understand his justice based on the things he has revealed in Scripture, which I think give us enough that we need to know in order to have the answer settled in our hearts. Doesn't mean we know the secret counsels of God. Okay? But I, I think that God is willing in our asking to answer us. But we have to be willing to hear. Because sometimes the answer isn't easy. Are you with me? Especially when, if, if you will, we, for example, have loved ones who perish. And we know they perish apart from the gospel. Right? And these, these things cause us immense, tremendous struggles. Nevertheless, God is here to comfort and strengthen us. Anyway, he goes on. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? You see how he points to God's sovereignty? And he says, I'm going to give you the answer, but let me tell you something. <laughs> right? You need to hear it. And, and, and ultimately, he's saying, ultimately, you're not going to argue with God. God's the one who did what he wanted to do because that's his sovereign prerogative. He goes on, verse 21, Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And here is the answer I was pointing to. What if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy whom he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. And so Paul, if you will, is effectively answering the question, And he's saying, God has borne with great patience the objects of his wrath who were prepared for destruction. And he did this for a purpose. What is that purpose? (laughs) To make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. And here's the other thing. He's pointing to his sovereignty in saving us and in preparing us for glory and his sovereignty in seeing us through till that end, even us whom he also called. Every one of us. Remember my analogy with Juan about the calling. Right? And so what Paul's point is, is God has the sovereign right to raise up Pharaoh for destruction. Because Pharaoh is fully responsible for his own sin. And every evil act that Pharaoh ever did, he did by his own will. And he even, of course, continued to sin even in the face of God's sovereign power whom Moses was displaying and saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh was hardening his heart. You read the story, Pharaoh's hardening his heart first, some will argue. Um, and then God, in response to that, hardened his heart. I, I read it like God hardened his heart, period. But the, the, the point is is that um, Pharaoh's evil, Pharaoh is responsible for and God is holding him accountable for that justly. And in that justice, God is being glorified. And so as difficult as that answer is, um, that's the answer that comes out of Scripture for that question. And uh, and I think, you know, the other thing is that opens up a whole can of worms. And uh, so if you want to understand the whole can of worms, I would commend you to a work like this, where he spends like... Um, and I think he gives a lot of really satisfactory answers to the entire can of worms in this book. Even though it's not exhaustive on the doctrine of salvation, it's, it's a pretty good section. Um, he, spends, um, he spends 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 chapters dealing with the doctrine of salvation and dealing with every aspect of it, including all the questions that come up about God's justice and the preaching of the gospel and how that works and how people get saved and the whole shooting and match. Um, and I, I, I really do think there are satisfactory answers. And I have asked all those questions at some point in my life. Yes. Sorry, I'm sorry. I, I, I really don't understand the nature of the question. And
1: Salvation is... is so
0: much more than, you know, than than, than just not being damned. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, so I, I think that that's very true. I think salvation is 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 more than just not being damned by a long shot. Um, in, in fact, um, you know what God is doing in salvation is described in so many various ways and contexts in the, in the in the Bible that. Uh, um I mean his purposes are manifold they 're many and and they are they are varied and um uh so i'm, I'm i really don't i 'm sorry but i 'm just not grasping the the uh the issue however however, as I point out, if you go back and look at, at my teaching on sovereignty, which I hope to do at some point in the future again. Before I even went into the doctrine of salvation, I spent a lot of time talking about God's providence and God's eternal decree and his foreordination of events that happened in history from before the beginning of history. And I, I, there's a section in there in talking about God's decree where I make the point that God could have easily... Um, prevented the fall of man by simply not giving a law in the garden. You know, man falling into sin was not something that escaped God's attention. It's not like he was taking a nap and he came back and, "Uh-oh, what what has man done?" Are you with me? That that Jesus Christ was a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. That there is a covenant of redemption that has taken place in the members of the Trinity from before the creation of the world where the Father has planned a great salvation. The Son has agreed to go and to purchase that salvation. And the Spirit has agreed to be the one who applies it and who glorifies both the Father and the Son throughout all history. And, and all of that stuff has happened in the mind of God before creation ever existed. When, when God told Adam not to eat from the tr- tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he full well knew that Adam would eat of that tree. Not only that, he had planned to send his son at the right time in history to redeem Adam's progeny out of sin and death. And that is what we call God's plan of redemption. It was a plan in the mind of God from eternity past. You understand? So God has intended to use sin in his creation in order to accomplish his plan. And John Piper puts it this way. He says God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And, you know, I I, I still don't think that adequately answers the deepest struggles I have about the question, but it certainly helps me to understand what the Bible has said about the question, right? Okay, uh, I'll get you there here. Mary Beth? Um,
1: I'm not sure, but maybe I could... Say that if I understand right, like, the the question about uh, damnation not being the flip side of salvation We go back to the order of salvation. That um, it's not like we have a ticket to heaven and we get to cash our ticket in. The order of salvation was before time began, um, and that. Um, Justification and sanctification. If that is not evident that that regeneration never took place Mm -hmm. and it's not like oh, okay. I got a ticket now I'm going to heaven and those people that don't go to heaven are damned It's not like it's the fact that the ones who obtain salvation um, it Began, if your time began, and it's outworked in their sanctification and shown by their evident lie. Mm-hmm. It, you can't. You don't get a little ticket and okay. I got baptized and now I get to party every night and go to
0: church. I'm Once saved, pray. always saved. Yeah. yeah. Right. This idea that I I walked an aisle, I said a prayer. <laughs> now I'm saved. I have license for immorality. Right. Right. That's, that's what I was referring to as the, the idea of once saved, always saved. Okay, which obviously is foolishness, right? Because nobody's going to see God apart from the holiness or sanctification that he works in the life of a believer. Which is the active mortification of sin. The progressive and active mortification of sin in the life of the believer is the fruit that flows from true saving faith. Does that articulate that? (laughs) Yeah. So, and somehow that's related to, is that related to what you were asking, Charles? Yeah. Okay, all right. So, you know, so I think that that kind of addresses it. Yes, that true saving faith that has been wrought in a person by regeneration is going to result in repentance from sin and the ongoing mortification of that sin and conformity into the image and likeness of Christ throughout its life and persevere till the end of either death or resurrection, right? And and so that there's going to be evidence of true saving faith, right? Yes, sir. I'd just like to make a
1: statement that I think the problem that we have is that we don't really understand God. We don't know. One attribute of God does not contradict the other attribute of God. Mm-hmm. So as we study God's word, we have to apply all his attributes mm-hmm. to His word. Mm-hmm. In other words, God is not just a God of
0: love, but he's also a God of hate. He's a God of mercy, but he's also a God of judgment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So all of these work in, the
1: word fits him. Mm-hmm. works with all of His attributes. We get in trouble when we take one attribute.
0: Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. And by the way, hate is a family value. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's one that we in God's family all mutually possess by the Spirit of God. We hate evil. Amen. 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 And I would also argue that that is one of the fundamental And most important family values that we have. And if you're not teaching your children to hate sin, then you've got a serious deficiency in your home. Amen? I, I just, I hate that bumper sticker that says hate is not a family value. Yeah. <laughs> because it, it, it just completely, it completely nullifies the character and attributes of God. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, sorry, I don't mean to get on my soapbox there. But, okay, well, so I'm going to take one more question and then we're going to move on because this is obviously. Uh, Carol. This will be quick. Okay. Um, would you just kind of
1: reemphasize. Regeneration involves both the ability to receive Christ and the desire to do so. So there won't be a bunch of people who like want to be Christians, but they can't because they're not.
0: Correct. Yeah, okay. So she's asking, you know, or she's she's wanting us to understand that regeneration in and of itself is, is um, not just a ticket that God gives us to heaven, but it's something that Uh, powerfully transforms us miraculously by the power of God and gives us the capacities and abilities that God is commanding us to fulfill in the gospel call. And furthermore, through that work, this power of the Spirit of God comes to live inside of us for the purpose of conforming us into the likeness of Christ throughout our life as Christians. And so that God is, is, um, God is, is uh, giving us capacities and abilities which we did not formerly have. And the biblical uh, picture of this is in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, where Paul says, but you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But God, verse 5, made us alive in Christ by grace you have been saved. Okay, and so the, the picture is a dead person. And so I, of course, in teaching about regeneration, we talk about spiritual death. And we say, uh, you know, how dead is a dead person? They're, they're dead, right? And so, well, how dead are they? Well, you can't ask that question about death. Why? Because it, it's, it's, death doesn't happen by degree. You're either dead or you're not dead, right? And when you're dead... There's nothing, humanly speaking, that you can do to gain a response from a dead individual. They are dead. Okay? So in in order for a dead person to have some kind of living response, God must be involved. And this is powerfully seen in the resurrection of Lazarus. Lord, by now his body stinketh. Right? He's been dead four days, not three days. Four days. He's been dead. He's rotting. Okay? We can go in there, blow trumpets, have a party, dump water on him. We can stick electric shock on his toes. He's not going to respond. He's dead. But, Jesus, are you with me? Lazarus is dead but Jesus this is Paul's language in Ephesians 2 you were dead in your transgressions and sins but God made us alive in Christ by grace you have been saved what did God do he powerfully spoke into your dead person your dead being and he raised you to life spiritually in Christ Which means he gave you power, a power that you could not have possessed any other way except by the voice of his command. Are you with me? You didn't have any ability to respond to the gospel. Why? Because the things of God are foolishness to the natural man. Indeed, he cannot understand them. It's not that he will not understand them. It's that he cannot understand them. Why? Because he's dead in transgressions and sins. And what he needs is regeneration. This is why we say regeneration precedes faith. In fact, regeneration is the giving of faith to the person. It's giving the capacities of them to not only understand their desperate need of salvation, but to to, to see Christ as the provision for that salvation that God is freely offering and giving them faith by which they can lay hold of Christ and receive what they need to be reconciled to God. And so, if you will, regeneration is how election is worked out in time and space. How does God pick Moses for salvation and not Pharaoh? By the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. That's how. He comes along and he does what he will in Moses, and Moses is powerfully saved. And he still yet uses Pharaoh to accomplish his purpose. And put his glory on display. And then he says he has the sovereign right to do that. And not only that, he says that Pharaoh is fully responsible for all of his sins. Because even his conscience is there convicting him of the evil he has done. Amen? Okay, good night. There went our whole class. Maybe we will be here till uh, May. <laughs> Going to Second Thessalonians. Uh, let me just let me just say, look, I, it, you know, hey, I, 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 I hope I'm being respectful. I, I don't mean to be disrespectful to to anybody. I want you to know that it took me many, many years to fully understand the doctrine of predestination. And it, 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 it's, it, it's a lot of struggle and it takes a lot of work to really examine all the passages in the Bible and to get your hands around the whole thing. It's not an easy thing. But nevertheless, I want to tell you that it is the most comforting doctrine that I have found in all of the Bible.
1: Yes.
0: Not only that, it is the most humbling doctrine that I have found in, in all of the Bible. Because when you come to understand that the reason you got saved is because God picked you as an individual and set his love upon you, in spite of all of your wickedness and your evil, that you are the individual object of his love. When that that truth shines into your heart and you finally understand that you were picked by God as an individual, then you say, In your heart for those who are perishing, but for the grace of God, there go I. Which is the same thing that happens when you pray for somebody to be saved. What are you praying for? You're praying for regeneration. That's exactly what you're praying for. Right? You're praying for God to move so that they will be saved. You're asking God to exercise His sovereign grace in prayer for somebody's salvation. Amen? You see that? Okay, so I also want to make myself available to you. If you're struggling with anything that I have said here, I will take the time and be more than happy to sit down with you, even many times if it takes that, and talk with you about it. I will be willing to have email conversations with you. I'll do anything I can to help you come to a better understanding of these things if and I'm making myself available to you you just need to let me know okay let's pray god our father we we praise you and we glorify you and we we see lord that there's great interest in these doctrines that you mentioned in scripture and lord it's hard to understand and i i just want to pray for all of us as we continue to think through these things that you have said and We see all the controversy that takes place among Christians over these things, that, Lord, we would just continue to look to you. And as our brother said, that we would seek to know and understand your attributes and your character, and that we understand that there's no contradiction in your being, but that, Lord, you work out your purposes according and and in harmony with all that you are and all that you have revealed to us. I pray, Father, that you would uh, uh, strengthen us as we struggle to understand And I I pray, Lord, that uh, you would both comfort us in this and that you would strengthen us in our faith and give us a resolve, Lord, to be gospel ministers like never before. I pray, Father, that uh, you would uh, cause us to stand firm in all that you have said to us and that your word would spread rapidly and be glorified even as we, your own people, go out and speak the message of your good grace to others. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the whole idea is just that you can profess the name of Christ, you have
1: truly been saved.